This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. And salut, Babette. Babette is our most faithful listener, and she's on water restrictions now out in country New South Wales, and she's dreading the heat waves of 2020. She's already affected by smoke from bushfires, and she told me yesterday that she's having to water her garden with a sort of smoke mask on. So, courage, Babette. Tonight... We'll try to come uh, to cover some of the climate campaigns of 2019, and I'd like um, Andy to start with an acknowledgement of country. Um, Andy, I didn't write it out for you, but um, do you know the acknowledgement of country? Yeah, 3CR would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you. And um, that reminds me that um, I've been thinking what's really been happening this year. And one of the main things that I've noticed at all the conferences and meetings I go to is that Aboriginal people seem to be coming to the front. People are inviting them to do much more than welcome to country, but to really tell us a lot about their philosophy and an approach. And, And for once, it seems to me unusual now, people are very receptive to this. Um. And since the failed climate election, I've noticed also uh, working people, especially coal miners and people in, you know, associated industries like the MUA are starting to take a leadership role. They're starting to think we don't want to be left behind when this uh, new era of decarbonised economy comes on. Line, we want to put ourselves in a good position. So they're starting to get on the front foot. And I've noticed that. Extinction Rebellion is another group that has really made a lot of change in the last 18 months and um, uh, climate action isn't just about stopping things you know stop Adani stop calcium gas all of that it's not just that it's also about new ways of connection between people a regenerative culture and the extinction rebellion people are saying look we're here for the long haul this is going to be for all our lives this is not a quick fix we need to look after each other and they they're modeling that very much in all the different actions caring for each other And in this spirit, um, we're going to talk to uh, someone who is very much on the front foot. She's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, Vanessa Petrie, and she'll tell us about how Beyond Zero Emissions has had a vision for industry, for energy and for communities. It makes it quite exciting to be alive, I think, if you read the books uh, published by Beyond Zero Emissions, especially lately. So welcome, Vanessa. Uh, hi, Vivian, and um, thank you so much for saying that. It means a lot to, to oh. us that our books would, yeah, make people's life, you know, really enrich it. Well, I think if, if these BZD books were in every library and were sort of like popular literature, a lot of people would get inspired. You know, people like that film 2040. I haven't seen it yet, but it's the sort of thing that BZD does, doesn't it? It, it says, look, this is how it could be, how it will be, actually, and here's how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, late last week I was having a chat um, to Shine Radio in WA and, you know, saying I haven't heard of you um, before, but, like, you just the positive, the solutions-focused work is, you know, compare that to a few years ago when the outlook, you know, the conversations around Collie and the outlook were very bleak, but there are solutions. We've got sun, we've got wind, we've got incredibly talented workers in Australia and there are people that can develop solutions and 
um, you know, we, we do this work to show what's possible and, you know, encourage other people to build on our work. Yeah, well, listeners will remember we, we, we interviewed a lot of people at Collie a few weeks ago mm. and I'd like to know how, how has BZD started to change its focus to working with whole communities and with sort of diverse solutions so that just not just a one-for-one one transition, it's a, it's a whole cornucopia of things that replaces, you know, say, coal or gas. Yeah, it's a number of a number of factors, Vivian. I mean, one of them um, was seeing our 2012 Port Augusta report and the influence that it had over time in, you know, helping to position Port Augusta as, you know, the people living there, seeing themselves as a renewable hub, leading hub in Australia, and, and that's exactly what they are now. They're like a, an Australian hub. Um, we'd, you know, we'd done a lot of work in industry um, and. You know, we thought, well, now is really the time to take all of our big picture reports that we've done and really look at what what's the solution for a particular place that's currently dependent on fossil fuels for their economic um, well-being. So, and, and of course, another really important thing that happened was our chair, Eitan Lenko, lived in Darwin for a year when the fracking moratorium mm. was lifted. So that also um, led to Eitan, you know, having a lot of conversations with his neighbours and his community. Mm. Um, and it all, basically it all boiled down to, well, no one is really doing this, this work. If we're going to have a just a transition um, where we all thrive, you have to have a vision and then you need to do the work to show how that can be implemented. So... That's what we're really committed to. And, I mean, it was really important. This work's been amazing for us. Um, we've had the opportunity to work with communities and it's been incredibly rewarding. We're, we're just looking forward to doing more of this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next year too because you've got a lot of communities sort of lined up to do these blueprints with. But, you know, I said at the beginning the workers have come to the fore. I think they're starting mm. the unions. They're starting to realise we'd better start um, organising and planning and projecting uh, because the, the government probably won't take the initiative. But Beyond Zero Emissions said that it's seeking a partner to build the first zero carbon factory. I'd like you to mm-hmm. speak to our audience, uh, speak to the workers in the audience who might get yeah. jobs there. Well, when we did um, last year, we researched how we can fuel switch manufacturing away from traditional gas and coal heating methods to using electrical technologies powered by renewables. Um, and there's so much potential for Australia to use our renewable energy um, use, sorry, we're having, it's very busy here today, to use our renewable energy yeah. um, combined with these technologies to almost re-industrialise parts of Australia because, and, and, you know, manufacturing provides high quality jobs, you know, it pays 10% more than, you know, the Australian average. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, sorry, I have to just have so to remind me. It's like a zero carbon factory, just a zero yeah, carbon so, factory. could be manufacturing yeah. anything, couldn't it? But it's just yes, this... It, um, and, and that's right, anything at all. So these technologies can do anything from um, manufacturing cans of baked beans right up to melting, melting steel. Huge potential in Australia with our renewable resources, you know, really skilled manufacturing workforce already um, and regions of access to good infrastructure. But what we found, though, and we're quite worried with our research, is that there's actually a real lack of knowledge and experience in Australia with these technologies. Now, things like an industrial heat pump, um, which, you know, can be used instead of a gas boiler, these technologies are being used, um, you know, they're proven technologies that are being used in you know, Southeast Asia and Europe and America, 
but not in Australia. So we thought, well, we, we need, Australia needs its first zero carbon factory to get things going, to be like a lighthouse project yeah. to show manufacturers what's possible. And because we couldn't really see any kind of, we, we thought it was a bit of a void and we could play mm. a really positive role in filling that. So Heidi Lee's been leading this over the last year where we've really been um, basically engaging with manufacturers, potential funders um, and consulting engineers to, and our aim is to bring the right group, group of people together to mm. build this factory in Australia. Oh, good. Well, we'll come back to that next year. One last question, Vanessa. Um, yeah. Look, people talk about, you know, it had a whole lot of humbug really about our coal and gas being mm. exported to India so that they can have their lights turned on. And I think that's lost a little bit of traction lately. No one's talking about that anymore. But, but what if we produced not only 100% of renewable energy for our own use, but say 500% or 700%? What could we do then? Well, you do exactly what we put forward in the 10 gigawatt vision. You'd use it to manufacture energy-intensive products to be used in Australia or to be exported you'd use it to export electricity to Southeast Asia. It was one of the opportunities we put forward in that plan. And, in fact, now we're seeing um, Sun Cable, which is a project that is um, aiming to build a 10-gigawatt solar farm near Tennant Creek and then export um, with a a high-voltage direct current cable to Singapore. Um, Recently, we saw the announcement that there's a funding consortium backing the first stage of that of Mike Cannon-Brooks and um, Andrew Forrest, Andrew Twiggy Mm. Forrest. So we can do loads of that. Basically, what we'll do, we can use that excess um, renewable energy and use it to have a really resilient and thriving economy. Mm. All right. Well, thank you, Vanessa. I'm asking everyone tonight just to check in with how you're feeling. How are you feeling at the end of 2019 in regard to climate action? (laughs) Uh, It's... um it's been a very mixed year for me, you know, um, at BCD. We, we've had a, you know, we've had a really great year. We've, we've done some work and we've, you know, we've shown people what the future can be like and we've had a, an amazing response, which, you know, we're very humbled by. Um, at the same time, we've, we've possibly had one of the hardest years we've had with seeing what we knew would occur with climate change play out um, yeah. and it's very confronting. I think, you know... I think we probably all need to recharge our batteries because even though you know this is this is a crisis, we know that it's also the long game. So I think I we all need to find a way to look after ourselves. Thank to, you very much. That's very going. much. Yeah. I hope you do look after yourself. Have a lovely holiday and we'll see you uh, next thank year. Thank you. Thanks you too, much. Vivian and Andy. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was um, um, Vanessa. She's She's got a young child, so that's why I asked her that question. Um, now, um, when our next speaker is really unusual. She's called Alex Sangster. She's a Uniting Church minister, and she went up to the Galilee Basin in Queensland with a, a multi-faith group to stand against Adani. And the Wanga and Jagalingu people were already there, and they went to the place where they are, their land, um, and they've been on our radio program many times but uh, they've lost their native title and their sacred springs are now owned by Adani. And so, um, you know, there needs to be a constant stream of people going up there. And I went to a sort of recruitment night for people who would like to go up over the holidays or any time, just constantly uh, helping those who have been 
devoted, I think, their life to standing up against Adani. Um, even today, I got a message, three people have stopped the work on Adani's proposed rail corridor by locking on. And I'll say their names because I think we should honour them. They're Tom Cotter, Simon Enu and Minna Featherston, and I'd like to say to you something that Tom, who's an ecologist, he made this uh, statement. Um, we, we are in an extinction crisis with one million species threatened globally. The planet is overheating and the evidence is clear that the only way to stop it is to leave coal reserves like the Galilee Basin in the ground. I've gone to these lengths to disrupt disrupt the mine's development and it's a reasonable response to the recklessness that is threatening life on this planet. So now we'll hear from Alex Sangster who was up there. Driving along dirt roads for over four hours under stars so bright they hurt your eyes and once again we folk of faith blocked the gates four of them this time we blocked those gates for five hours and then we were arrested. Let me tell you a little about the people up at the camp. Some of them, when I went the second time, were brand new. There's a whole moving community of people that are up there, and some of them have been there from the very beginning. Some of them have been there for years. Many of them are people who have dedicated their lives to holding the line. So we just had a little bit of history then about the history of the environmental movement and how NVDA can be part of making a difference in Australia. Campaign after campaign, battle after battle, some lost, some won. The Franklin, Malls Creek, Jabaluka, the Pilbara and now Adani. These activists, their skins are calloused and creased with the sun and the dirt. They sleep in swags. They make decisions by consensus. They gather under tents. They leap in and out of trucks to stop a drilling or lie down in front of an earth mover. They are young and they are old and they are filled with passion and their hearts have been broken over and over again and they've been arrested over and over again and they will not give up. They are giving their lives to stem the rising tide of despair. And the only, the only time I saw a flash of anger in anyone's eyes was when they spoke of the people who spoke to them and who said, well, mate, you know, there's nothing I can do there's nothing there's nothing I can do what what could I possibly do so my tradition teaches me to never underestimate to never underestimate the power of prophetic words and action to never underestimate the power of individuals joining together to change the world if every single person in this room went up to the Adani front line and sat down and refused to move and then got arrested and then the next week another room full of... And then, then you're getting the story, the picture, yeah. So prophetic witness, we've all heard of someone called Martin Luther King. He spoke about this idea of the arc of the moral universe and he said it bends slow but it bends towards justice. And there's this idea that each generation has to pick up the bow and arrow and shoot that across this arc to be part of creating a just world. Martin Luther King was, in his time, he was considered to be a dangerous, radical activist. He was arrested time and time again. His words would have meant little if he, they had not been written from a jail cell or at the head of a protest march or preached on the day before he was assassinated. 
He dramatised injustice and he forced change. The way he did this, though, was through disciplined, non-violent, direct action. And this form of protest speaks powerfully to an alternative vision in a way that violence cannot. So do you remember that we started this conversation with me tumbling out of a truck? Let's go back to Queensland for a moment. Let's go back to the Great Barrier Reef. A few years ago, my daughters and I were talking about the possible extinction of the reef. Why? They wanted to know, but why? Why can't we stop it from happening? Now, I'm still learning how to talk to my children about the human hand, the complicite we have in mass destruction and death. How do we acknowledge this and how do we look our children in the eye? We can choose to stop this mine. We know this. Thank you very much to Alex Sangster. And now we'll talk to Naomi Hogan. She's the National Coordinator of Lock the Gate Alliance. And we've had many interviews over the years with with Lock the Gate. They are out there really fighting on many fronts. And she's trained in science communications, energy systems and Indigenous land management. So welcome, Naomi. Hi, Vivian. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Tell us what's been the highlight of this Northern Territory campaign for you. Oh, well, where to begin? I think uh, what's happening in the Northern Territory at the moment is that um, after many years of incredible community action um, and strong voices from uh, right across the Northern Territory, including from the Aboriginal traditional owners um, who are very concerned about impacts on their land and waterways, uh, to people in the cities, tourism operators, um, you know, the whole community of the Northern Territory really got together uh, to call for fracking in the Northern Territory. So huge new proposals for onshore gas fields, uh, fracking for oil and gas. People were calling for that to be banned to protect their communities. Um, And last year we had the lifting of the the moratorium, so the government chose to allow fracking in huge areas over half of the Northern Territory. And so in this last year we've seen... Um, an incredible, resilient community working together, um, particularly the traditional owners from the front lines of those areas, those Aboriginal communities who um, are now looking at having to live in and near fracking gas fields, have really stood together um, and are now um, have travelled across Australia this year to go to the AGM of Origin Energy. Origin Energy are one of the biggest frackers in the Northern Territory with big plans there. Um, They've also travelled to big public meetings across the East Coast uh, to talk to people in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne about um, what they're facing there. Um, And it's been incredible to see people um, use all of the (laughs) the courage and and the time that they can to get the word out, to work together um, and support one another um, to speak out, to you know, speak in front of crowds of hundreds of people, even yeah. though for most of us that's the scariest thing we could do, um, but also to just speak that truth and get the word out there and get thousands of people around Australia revved up um, to support people in the Northern Territory to stand up to those fracking gas fields yeah. and that's just begun. Well, yeah. what, I hope I hope it can rev up because I, one of the most moving interviews I did with was with one of those traditional owners just outside the Origin mm. AGM, and he spoke to me, and he told me how beautiful his land is and and the springs there, and he talked about it in just such a personal way, and I thought, 
oh, how remote is this? I look on the map, it's miles and miles away. And like on the East Coast weekend, like you remember the Bentley blockade, you know, you could you could get 100,000 people sort of, you know, up in arms and ready to converge and the police backed off. And then you have some wins. But how can we get, what strategy are you doing? Um, I know there's um, Bruce Robertson's going around at the moment in Northern Territory talking about the economic risks. I would mm. like people to think about the climate risks, but... You know, what strategies are you using to get people like coast, you know, big city people like Melbourne and Sydney to, you know, really get it, really get behind it? Well, in a way, Vivian, we have um, we have an option available to us because one of those first big fracking companies that's really pushing ahead is Origin Energy, and they have retail customers and sell electricity and gas right across the East Coast. So people living in other parts of Australia really do have a strong um, way to get involved um, and can really put pressure on, similar to when people were putting pressure on the big four banks not to invest in Adani, uh, not to lend money to Adani. We can put pressure on Origin as either customers of Origin or potential customers of Origin Energy uh, to put the pressure on them Uh, to let them know that we will take our business elsewhere or we will absolutely reject ever being a customer of this company if they continue their plans to put fracking gas fields across the Northern Territory. So in that way, it's something that everyone can get involved in from wherever you are. You can call Origin Energy, you can leave a complaint, you can jump on the Lock the Gate website uh, on the very um, first landing page there as you go on to lockthegate.org.au. You can sign the pledge there um, and you can join in on the campaign against Origin Energy wherever you are. They're one of the first and biggest companies in the NT to frack and sending them a really clear message and then getting others to do the same um, is one really strong thing that we can do from wherever we are. Fantastic. Um, you're, such a good, yeah. you're such a good advocate. You've put it really clearly. I'm asking everyone this one question. Extinction Rebellion people ask, you know, check in, mm. how are you feeling? And I'm thinking at the moment there's a climate summit coming up in February, 14th and 15th of February. Listeners, if you... you we're going to the Sustainable Living Festival. Well, it's a climate summit this year on those days. And there are people on hunger strike around the world. Some people are up to day 20 of a hunger strike to try and get, you know, elected representatives to really see it's a crisis. There's COP25 churning away in Madrid. I wonder how are you feeling about this year, where we're up to? Well, I mean, I can say on behalf of the people that are involved in the Lock the Gate network across Australia, it is a really, really difficult time now. We represent people living on the land and in regional and remote communities right across Australia and people are... The the impacts of climate change are here and are alive and strong and people are fighting bushfires and are part of their rural fire brigade. They are dealing with drought. Their rivers have run dry. Uh, Some people's communities have completely run out of drinking water. Um, You know, cultural water sites uh, have dried up. People are feeling really, really stressed out, to be honest, about the realities of the climate crisis that we are well and truly in. And um, more and more people are seeing firsthand those impacts and we're hearing that the polls... um, of everyday people across Australia are stronger ever before. The environment and climate change is really up there with people's concerns. And so I think for me, it's a really serious time. It's a time that we really need to look after each other and deal with these very immediate impacts now 
and we need to use this as an opportunity to have as many conversations with we can as we can those difficult conversations with people that may not see it like we do yeah. um, but use this opportunity to talk to people about the, the the impacts of climate change making things worse when it comes to drought bushfires okay. heat waves storms and yeah. really try and use 2020 as the year I'd like to think and I'm hopeful that this could be the time when people really wake up to what's going on and that we can really get this collective effort into okay. making sure that we stop the worst of these big new projects from going ahead and that we turn things around. Thank you, Naomi. That's very heartfelt. Thank you very much. And you no have worries. a rest now and we'll see you next year. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you, Vivian. Bye-bye. Good night. Oh, dear. That's moving as when people say this. Look, um, the next person we are going to talk to, I think we have a little break for some music and then uh, we're going to go to listen to one of the hunger strikers that I spoke to on the steps of Parliament. I am not in love But I'm open to persuasion East or West When you think of community... Uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show and you're on Radio 3CR. Look, the entry of Extinction Rebellion has not only disrupted the traffic, but it's given us a new philosophy of protest and all sorts of new people have got involved, welcoming difference and vulnerability. I've been very impressed at some of the workshops I've gone to, just the whole new feeling and new people. Um, but focusing on care for each other and not divisiveness. And they're showing themselves ready to make sacrifices too, so people will see that we are in uncharted waters. Many councils and parliaments have declared an emergency, but then what? Oh, we're going to hear Jacinda Ardern. Oh, I know what I was going to say. We, we should hear Daniel Bleakley first. Let's, um, we'll, uh, we'll go to Daniel Bleakley. He's a person who was... Um, on the steps of Parliament, I'll, I'll do Jacinda Ardern afterwards because she's more upbeat, but this is the real, uh, the lower depths. This is a person who has not been eating for nine days. Daniel Bleakley. After I left Claremont and, and moved to Brisbane and was, was studying engineering, I also started learning about climate science and, and reading books and, and so forth. And I got quite concerned back then. And in 2001, I wrote my first letter to a politician in in Queensland about about their inaction really and I got a really uh, rubbish response about a I think they wrote about a a one megawatt uh, macadamia nut husk uh, power plant that they were planning on building and because I was studying engineering I knew that that was just garbage and uh, yeah I, I continued to do the right thing and sign petitions and write letters and and do all those things but uh, nothing's changed and our emissions just keep going up in Australia so uh, this year after some of the really dire reports that we've seen in the last 12 months I decided to, to get involved with Extinction Rebellion and it's one of the best things I've ever done 
So for listeners, you think, oh, well, why doesn't he go through the normal channels? He's been doing this for 20 years, going through the normal channels and now on hunger strike. Tell us about that. How does that come up as the right thing to do? Well, I hadn't, I, I only heard about the global, it's, it's, it's actually an Extinction Rebellion global hunger strike, which started on the 19th. And I mean, it's, it's been very tough, but... I've managed to get a lot of a lot of publicity and spoken to a lot of people walking past on the streets, and we've been able to get to get the message out there and, and get the truth out there a bit more. Well, that is the first principle of tell the truth, and the uh, government. Yes, yeah, you've got it. Oh, yeah, you've got it pinned to your shirt. That's right, tell the truth. But this is so hard for governments to do that. They're so compromised. Have any of the parliamentarians come out and sort of sympathised with you? You're a fellow citizen, but how? they must think they're over a barrel and can't go as fast as we would want them to do. Yeah, I think that on the speed, first on the on the, the speed thing, I think that's a big misconception because our, our second demand is to, to get to net zero emissions by 2025 and a lot of people say, well, that's too too soon. But if we look at history, if we look at the Second World War, countries around the world transform their economies, transform their industries within six months to point them at the existential threat that was facing them. And this was before computers. So it's totally possible for us to, to do this. And if we do decide to do it, it will be it has the potential to be one of the greatest economic booms in history during the transition phase where we need to, to build all this sustainable infrastructure, build the electric vehicles, redesign our uh, sustainable agriculture and so forth so there's a huge opportunity here for massive jobs boom and massive economic boom as we step into the third industrial revolution Beyond Zero Emissions is the group I'm with and it's full of engineers there and they just, you know, it's just a marvellous challenge for them. I think they're glad to be alive in this era because they're putting out all these reports on just how to do it. Mm. We've just written one on um, transitioning a town in Western Australia called Collie, which Mm. is probably like Claremont, based on coal, but they could transition to lots of other manufacturing that would suit the skill set of the people there. So, you know, I think it's... To me, it's an exciting time to be alive too. If only we could get this lumpish inertia of parliaments, mm. you know, behind it, maybe cut through that. Do you feel that democracy, as we've got it, isn't isn't really fit for purpose? How, how do you think this popular extinction rebellion method is probably cutting through better? Yeah, I think it's got huge potential, and that ties into our third demand, which which is about um, that governments should set up a citizens' assembly so that we can go beyond politics because at the moment our political system is broken. We don't have a real democracy in this country. At the moment, around half of the MPs in the Liberal Party at the federal level have ties to the coal industry. So they're not making decisions in the interest of the people. They're making decisions in the interest of coal mining companies. That's not democracy. And when people like Clive Palmer can spend $60 million and influence an election... That's not democracy. Well, just to finish, um, sitting on the steps, I've just noticed there's a lot of empty plates all around you. What's what's that for? Yeah, so there's a plate for every meal that I've uh, missed since I started. And, uh, yeah, there's now 26 plates on, on the steps. And, yeah, it's just a bit of a... Bit quite symbolic of, yeah. of, uh, of what I'm going through. And I'm... I'm very privileged because I can stop this at any time. I could walk across the street right now and have a sandwich, but 
many people in the world. So that was Daniel Bleakley, a very brave person, and apparently there's, and he's just told me there's another guy who's up to day 19 on the same steps trying to get the attention of parliamentarians. But now we're going to a different sort of parliament, New Zealand, and I'd like to just play you a tiny bit of Jacinda Ardern with her zero carbon bill. She says we have to start moving beyond targets, just don't have these little targets just go as soon as possible 100% and deliver signs of action. And in the YouTube video, which we'll link to this uh, podcast, you'll see she gets a standing ovation from the whole parliament. Jacinda Ardern. We're here because our world is warming. Undeniably, it is warming. And I'm proud at least that 10 years on from when I first sat right over there, We're no longer having the debate over whether or not that is the case. We're merely debating what it is we do about it. Climate change is the biggest challenge of our time. And for us here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that means for this generation, this is our nuclear moment. And so today, if we're to truly reflect that that is what this means for us, We have to start moving beyond targets. We have to start moving beyond aspiration. We have to start moving beyond statements of hope and deliver signs of action. And that is what this government is doing, and proudly so. Thank you, National, for supporting this bill. We have to be unified in the fight against climate change. We have to move together. There will be areas where we don't always agree, and in one area it will probably be pace of change. But we will keep pushing, doing everything we can to bring you with us. But, Madam Chair, today we have made a choice that I am proud of that will leave a legacy and that I hope means the next generation will see that we, in New Zealand, were on the right side of history. Well, that's to lift our spirits, listeners. Now we're going to move um, to the vexed question of not flying. Now, I know all of you are going to be turning off the radio because you don't want to hear this message, but I've got a very nice person here called Mark Carter, and he's with us in the 3CR studio, and he wrote a book called The Elephant in the Air. And uh, he brings together most of the information you need in that book. But it's not just about information. And so he's launched a new group called Flight Free Australia where you can make a commitment. You know, just 12 months, I won't fly. Just to get used to, well, what else can you do? It's not actually compulsory to fly uh, in many cases. So welcome, Mark. Thanks, Vivian. It's great to have the uh, opportunity to uh, spread the word. Oh, yes. Well, I hope you get people signing up to your website. It's very easy to, you know, pledge and all of that. Tell us how there's this new Swedish word called flugskorm, which is flight shaming. And apparently people in, you know, the media get really into people who don't take flights and or try, no, try to shame people who do take flights. Um, but this is not what you're about, is it? No, um, the, the, yeah, the flig scam is. Um, uh, my understanding is that it was um, uh, a word uh, coined by um, Sweden uh, Europeans who are um, deciding not to fly um, because, as they put it, um, for shame, personal shame for participating in um, emissions from from flying. So they were talking about themselves and using the word flight shame. I feel flight shame. But it's interesting that the the media 
um, has uh, con- conveniently, as, as it sometimes does, um, t- twisted that phrase to um, now uh, popularise and, 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 and use often the term flight shaming, um, which... Uh, is not associated with the intentions or the motives of um, people choosing not to fly um, in the fly-free movement in Europe. But it is uh, a a canny way for um, the aviation industry and others to uh, depict um, the motives of um, – or to misrepresent the motives of um, people concerned about – the hidden hazards of aviation emissions. It's like when people say, don't lecture me, and they say it with that tone of voice, and you think, well, I wasn't lecturing, I was just telling you about something, and it's like that, it puts them off, doesn't it? Well, recently the Swedish young girl Greta Thunberg has sailed both ways across the Atlantic to get to the United Nations Climate Conference, and I was enchanted when I saw that. I mean, I just, I, I would hate to say on myself I'd be sick in the first yeah, five minutes. <laughs> I know, and I saw her, and so plucky and young, she probably didn't know what she was in for but anyway she did it and I just felt she used her platform being very famous at the moment to do that. What was the effect do you think of her example? It's um, uh, in conjunction with um, uh, sort of a kind of in the zeitgeist at the moment the uh, few other groups and organisations in, in, in Europe also um, uh, raising the issue of, um, uh, of flying and um, uh, reintroducing um, train services, night train services across Europe. Um, I think there was a there was a um, a uh, Swedish Olympic champion um, skier who uh, was a sort of national hero, being a gold medalist, who's retired and uh, had a um, was engaging in a contract negotiation with a TV station for him to comment on winter sports in uh, in Europe, and he said, "Look, I'm not. You got to. I'll do the job, but the conditions are that I you schedule my work to uh, me arriving via train. I'm not going to fly." Mm-hmm. So there's been this the last twelve months, eighteen months. There's been this a number of um, sort of separate but sort of um, coalescing um, a- actions, individuals and, and groups, and, and Greta's um, with her. Plain speaking on climate truth as a whole has um, has, has also um, uh, brought awareness of the flying issue. Yeah, and I, I I think it'll end up being like smoking. You know, it'll be there'll be social disapproval or something will happen. But meanwhile, we've got to act faster than that. And as we're speaking tonight, I believe in at Heathrow Airport there are some of these uh, Extinction Rebellion people and other protesters trying to stop the third runway. They're lying down in the roads. They've got these big. Machinery, earth-moving machinery, and in terms of global emissions, what I want to ask you is: campaigning for no new runways or no new airports going to be eventually as important as no new coal mines and no new gas fields? I, th- I think so, um, it, to 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 a degree. I mean, the uh, the, um, the key thing about aviation emissions is they're sort of kind of hidden, and the importance is to sort of get a discussion and, and raise awareness on them. Um, Obviously, uh, you know, coal mining and um, generating uh, emissions from, um, you know, gas and and oil burning are huge um, contributors. Um, The the interesting thing about flying is that it's sort of so hidden, people just don't know about it at all. So it's um, it's commonly quoted as 2% of um, carbon emissions, but because it's uh, released at at altitude, it has a a warming effect of at least five times that... um, 
So there's a challenge to uh, address those emissions by reducing our flying, but culturally, us in the Western economies yeah. and um, who want to go for holidays in Bali and yeah. Europe and stuff, it's it's a real it's a pers- it's a the thing that attracts me to the issue is that it is this um, uh, it, it really it goes to the core for me of um, we're in a climate emergency and and, and addressing the issue of um, choosing not to fly sort of goes to the core of um, an emergency response that we are in an abnormal situation um, where in abnormal situations in emergencies if uh, you know the, there's a, a flood or whatever or a house is um, bushfires approaching we stop doing normal we change our priorities we willingly change our priorities for the duration of the emergency and for me that's how to see this the 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 proposition and and engagement with the with the with the issue of um, reducing aviation emissions and thinking about not flying oh well you've put it so well just the last question how do these cheap flights how have how are they made possible and what about how could you stop them being so cheap by having taxes? I think you told me the other day that there's no tax on international flights. Yes, yeah, there's, um, it's one of the other hidden sort of elements and, and, and often people might probably wonder how the um, economy of um, aviation sustains itself on such cheap flights. But it's, what, one big contributor is that um, the international aviation industry doesn't pay any um, tax on the fuel that they use. Uh, they um, cunningly um, set up arrangements um, in 1944 when, in the Chicago Convention, it's called, where the international aviation was just getting off the ground um, and make, excuse the pun, um, and they set out rules as far as their um, uh, engagement or um, um, commerce between countries was that they wouldn't have to play um, any um, uh, f- f- ta- They'd be exempt from um, their fuel would be exempt from tax and or any national duties and charges, and because from those foundings, I guess people were seeing the advantages of, of flying and um, uh, and stuff. They wanted to encourage it, so these um, uh, um, subsidies have have remained. Um, yeah, but they are quite hidden, aren't they? Uh, I, I have so many other questions to ask you, but I'm going to come back to you next year. We'll do a, a proper program about this aviation right. question from many points of view. But just to check in with you, how are you feeling about, you know, climate action at um, the end of 2019? I'm. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a roller coaster. Um, you know, I, I go through a, a periods of of, of, of of almost despair at looking at the sort of the opposition and, and obstacles we face. Um, but as your previous four or five um, interviews um, illustrated, there's uh, there's a huge amount of work and a huge number of people um, working for a, um, uh, a positive uh, future. And just sort of personally on the on the aviation issue, having get, got this um, the flight free Australia pledge campaign and associated other aviation emissions campaigning um, off the ground um, just a month ago. It's sort of, um, we're just sort of starting out. We're not um, totally organised yet, um, but it's it's a, 
uh, an opportunity for growth in, in this in in campaigning. So we're feeling quite sort of good and excited. Yeah, well, I just wanted before Andy's giving me the cue to hurry up, but but really on his website, Flight Free Australia, you can also write your story. And I'm going to uh, contribute over Christmas. I'm going to contribute a story of how I go back and forth from Sydney to Melbourne on the train, and I really enjoy it now. I know when the canola comes out round Wagga, and I'm I'm sort of tuned in in a way that I wasn't before. So thank you, and I think any listeners who uh, tell Mark that they heard this on the radio will get a you know, a, a star for their story if they send it to him Thanks, on his Vivian. website. Very easy to find. Flight Just Free Australia. At flightfree.net.au is the oh, yeah. URL. Flightfree.net. Yeah. And it's an international organisation. They've got them even in Peru, Flight Free, and uh, lots of European. Sorry, Andy, Andy's getting exasperated there. Uh, the next uh, person we're going to speak is one of these workers that I've told you about. His name is Terry John Herbert. He's a member of the MUA and a wharfie in Sydney. And he spoke at Trades Hall just recently here in Melbourne about his Maori heritage and his deep respect for nature. It's quite horrific what he tells you about what he saw when he was out as a seafarer, you know, um, servicing the oil rigs out of Broome. So let's hear Terry John Herbert. I myself uh, come from Māori heritage. Uh, my iwi is Ngāti Tōa. In Māori, we have a word for the people of the land, um, and that's tangata whenua. So I just wanted to pay my respects to the tangata whenua here and to their elders past and present. My name's Tommy John Herbert. Uh, I'm a wharfie in Sydney, uh, and I spent most of my career as a seafarer in the fossil fuel industry um, I'm an active member of the MUA, a rank and file member. I'm also an active rank and file uh, member of a, a new climate action group up in Sydney, Workers for Climate Action. So yeah, I wanted to share my experiences of working in the fossil fuel industry, um, some of the environmental impacts I saw firsthand and why I think it's important uh, to get involved in the climate movement today. So in my time as a seafarer, uh, Working out, I worked on some of the biggest resource projects in Australia. One was in Darwin uh, on the Impex project, and uh, we, I was working on a dredge there where we were digging trenches uh, for the pipeline that was transporting gas from the north of WA all the way to a processing plant in Darwin. Um, one of my main jobs there was to clean out the heads of the uh, the dredge when uh, they'd finished filling up the ship with product. Uh, it was a pretty messy job. Um, we basically had to get into the head and clean out all the clay and rock with um, crowbars and, and spades. Uh, but occasionally uh, we would come across sea life in there as well. Um, most commonly turtles. And um, so you can kind of imagine the mess. Uh, some days we had to go and clean up there. Um, sometimes uh, they would just just be hanging on, still be alive. And, um, you know, they, bosses would put on us to, to put, put them down, which was, you know, quite uh, soul-crushing uh, most days. Um, in Broome, I worked on a supply vessel looking after a drill rig offshore. And uh, so we'd load up in, in Broome and then we'd take cargo out to the rig. It was usually about a day and a half sail. Uh, on the way, uh, most days we would uh, come across all these uh, groups of dead fish on the on the surface of the ocean, 
And then as we got closer to the rig, uh, you'd, you'd see them more and more. And then when we actually get to the rig itself, the entire structure uh, would be surrounded by these by these dead fish. And I don't know if many of you know Broome, but it's it's pretty well known for its beautiful reefs, um, its sea life. So it's pretty shocking to see a graveyard off off its coast. Um, and I, I wanted to share those particular stories um, because at, at, as a worker in that industry, it, it can be pretty brutal on the conscience, um, you know, work, working in that industry. Um, me and my workmates, we would uh, report those environmental issues. And, um, you know, it, but at times it would only just result in more and more bureaucracy. Um, there wasn't really any kind of major change that came out of that. Um, I wish I could say I, I did more, maybe chain myself to some machinery <laughs> or, or, or something. Um, but I was, I was scared, to be honest. I was scared to uh, lose my job, scared of letting my, my workmates down. Yeah. Strike action from workers has played a, a crucial role in, in many movements throughout history. So that was Tommy John Herbert. You can see he's very serious and he's he speaks a lot about the way forward for workers like that to be part of the renewable, like offshore wind. They could transfer their skills to that very easily. So now we're going to have um, an interview that Kurt did for me and uh, he interviewed Wendy Farmer and uh, she was... Uh, just had been in Melbourne going to that um, commission and court hearing about the mine fires in Morwell. So Wendy Farmer from Voices of the Valley about the Morwell mine fire, fire and interviewed by Kurt. So on February 9th, 2014, a fire started near the perimeter of Hazelwood Mine. It spread quickly inside the mine, taking root in the worked out bowels of the pit, burning deep seams of brown coal. It spread so deeply it took 45 days to put out the mine fire, which appeared like the jaws of hell. Now, if you've passed Morwell, you can see the mine ends right near the town's perimeter. So it's easy to understand how Morwell was blanketed in toxic smoke for those 45 days. A 2015 inquiry came to the conclusion that there is a high probability this fire led to the deaths of 11 people. This year, on November the 19th, jurors on the ongoing court case about the Hazelwood mine fire found the operator of the Latrobe Valley Hazelwood power station guilty of 10 worksafe breaches, including failing to do an adequate risk assessment and failing to have a reticulated water pipe system for the worked out mines. We have on our show someone who has never stopped fighting for justice from this event, Voices of the Valley community leader, Wendy Farmer. Wendy, a very big welcome to the show. Thank you, Kurt. So what did the Hazelwood Mine Fire mean for the community in the Latrobe Valley? Well, for this community, it was an experience that had, you know, never really happened before. We knew that we had power stations around our homes, you know, in our communities, but we had never really thought about the dangers of what these power stations and mines could have and how they could impact on our community. So I think it changed the way that the community looked at the power stations and the mines after that particular event. Can you explain exactly what the mine operator, uh, which is now Onji, uh, was found guilty of? Okay, so please don't uh, hold exactly 100%. But it was, there was 10 charges they were found guilty of from WorkSafe. Five of those were towards 
um, not protecting the community and five were um, not protecting the workers. And that was really important to have in that case that WorkSafe also have a responsibility outside of workplace to protect the community outside of the boundaries of a industry. Yeah. Um, so those charges were um, basically that the company hadn't done the risk assessments or put into motion plans to protect their workers and community. That was in the sense of they didn't have um, water, enough water there. They didn't have workers on a um, already scheduled to work on an extremely hot day. The particular day was going to be as bad as Black Saturday or worse. Mm. So the weather prediction had already said you need to be prepared. Um, they had shrubs in the shrubs and trees on the batters of the mine. They didn't have the water um, reticulation there because they had removed pipes um, after the SEC days and they had sold them for scrap. The, yeah. pipes, the, the pipes were leaking, the pipes were becoming so damaged, they couldn't be repaired, but they also didn't, in hindsight, think about replacing those, rather they took them away. But they still had a lot of fuel on the worked out areas. So of course, once embers took hold of the worked out areas, they had no staff there, no water, they couldn't fight a fire. You know, we do have to remember that the, the people that fought that mine, in, in our eyes, were heroes. Mm. It was, you know, that particular um, first week was like living in hell. And some of the witnesses, one of the witnesses actually said that he thought it was, he was in hell. Like it was just terrible to, you can't, we can't even imagine what it was like inside or outside of the mine unless you actually lived there at the particular time. Like the, the smoke was so thick and dense and it tasted like metal. It was terrible. So the operators, deciding not to man or replace pipes was a really big thing because, as I said, they had um, open source of fuel. Mm. Now, EPA charged four companies on um, different charges, and that was basically polluting the air inside the mine and outside the mine, not being prepared. The same sort of similar things that they didn't have their water they hadn't taken their risk assessments. So it was really interesting to be able to uncover that. As I said, it had been suppressed. Yeah. So both of the regulators have actually taken really large steps and should be congratulated because that is their job to protect communities and workers. And they've taken this one to court. Isn't that lovely? That's Kavisha Marcella, who's one of my favourite singers. She sings in Italian. Now, thank you to our guests tonight. Vanessa Petrie from the uh, Beyond Zero Emissions, where she's CEO. Naomi Hogan from Lock the Gate Alliance. The Reverend Alex Sangster from the Stop Adani campaign. Daniel Blakely, fasting with Extinction Rebellion people around the world. 
Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and Mick Eight from um, the Sustainable Hour in Geelong, a radio program that I advise you to listen to, listeners, and he sent me Jacinda's um, audio, so that's why we used it. We had Mark Carter here, founder of Flight Free Australia, and he came in the studio. Terry John Herbert from the MUA, Wendy Farmer from Voices of the Valley, and that was courtesy of Kurt, who produced that interview. Thanks to Andy, who produced this show, and he does it very frequently, and the podcasts. Thanks to Kurt Johnson and to Erin Jones, who've turned out quality reporting all year long. Thanks to our friends on the Friday show of BECD, and to Roger Vise, who... This year he has shown great care for one of our team members uh, called Niels Becker. I'd like to end with some words from a poet that I know up in New South Wales in the smoky bush. And she spares a thought for those furry, scaly, feathered and invertebrate individuals and big trees and little orchids. She says, some fire is okay, not this. Keep cool as a cute frog. That's her parting words. And I'd like to wish everyone listening to this a lovely holiday. Listen to our holiday shows from now till uh, early February and be back in Melbourne for the Climate Summit, which is on the 14th of February. Just a note for anyone who's in Melbourne this week, Cinema Nova is having an advanced screening of a film called The Biggest Little Farm. I saw it some months ago at one of the festivals, and it's a marvellous film about regenerative farming, soil health, all sorts of marvellous, rich ways to... um, you know, get more carbon in the soil and probably more fun out of farming. It's at 8.30 this Thursday at the Cinema Nova and it's a fundraiser and you'll see it first there. So good night, everybody, and good luck.
wanna breathe, did you notice it? The day is waking, oh, it's waking up so late, it slept in way too long, it's really far too sleepy. Did you notice it? Did you notice in the air today, the air is hard to breathe? 